This time, I was more than willing to jump on the walls right away upon arrival. I've been dreaming about the Granite of Yosemite for months and couldn't wait to experience it again. Tim and I got on the Royal Arches, a 1,500-foot moderate route that climbs left of some giant arch formations on low-angle terrain, with a great view of Half Dome to the east. At one point, we even got passed by three soloists. No ropes, just smiling. One of them was even barefoot, with a thousand feet of air below him. By the time we reached the top, we were relatively fatigued. We'd made the marathon drive, during which we drank little water and ate nothing but junk food, and then we hopped right on the wall. At this point, we had to make a series of rappels, heading down the descent slab, and then into a chimney system to finish things off. By the time we reached the chimney, it was dark. I was feeling nature's call and I really had to poop. I wanted to get off the damn wall. I got into a hurry. I saw a fixed rope leading to the next rappel and decided to hop on that instead of rigging our own rope. I rappelled down the rope, looking for the next bolted anchor. And then, all of a sudden, snap. The end of the rope went through my rappelling device. This is Luke Mihal with the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from The Climbing Zine. Welcome to episode 7. As we continue on with my 2016 memoir, American Climber, this episode, as well as every episode in this first season, is brought to you by Sticker Art. Sticker Art, where every sticker tells a story. Fans of The Climbing Zine can get 20% off over there, and all you got to do is add Dirtbag in the checkout. As always, the number one way to support the climbing zine is to subscribe to it. And the best way to support this podcast is by subscribing on Patreon, which you can do for as little as dollar a month. And without further delay, let's get back into American Climber for the dirtbags, for the climbers, and for the people who want to be dirtbag climbers. The next day, there were some climbers obviously Creek veterans, who were establishing a new route. I didn't even really notice what was going on until they reached the top of a crack, and there were no anchors. So, they hauled up a power drill, and swiftly drilled two holes, and then hammered expansion bolts into the wall. Most of the climbs I'd done had the same anchors, but this was the first time I'd witnessed a new route go up. Whoever said there's nothing new under the sun was not a climber. For the rest of my life, I know there will always be new routes. You just have to know where to look. In the late 1990s, there was more low-hanging fruit out in the Colorado Plateau than there is now, but the fruit is still ripe for the picking. Flash forward a couple years, and we were just getting the taste for our desert fix. I had figured out the techniques, the basics, and spent plenty of time paying my dues, jamming every size of crack I could find. The adrenaline endorphins that desert climbing creates is addicting, so much that we find ourselves returning as often as possible, striking when the iron was hot and the nights were cool. Tim was the rope gun, the energy I attached my climbing hopes and dreams to. He was a force to be reckoned with, and he was always the secret weapon we used as we climbed harder and harder. Around this time, Tim became two-tent Timmy. When I moved into a tent in Gunnison, Tim moved into a tent in Crested Butte, the epic mountain town 30 miles north of Gunny, where he was working at the time. Some friends went to visit him at his new home, a piece of real estate on National Forest land he staked out by setting his tent up. What he did that everyone thought was so memorable was he put a tent inside another tent. 
The large outer tent was where he kept his cooking supplies and other gear, and the inside tent was where he slept. Once the words, Two Tent Timmy, were uttered, it was a nickname for life. This was perfect because there was another Tim. We worked together, and he was on the mountain rescue team, and he was interested in climbing. We struck a deal. I would join the rescue team and learn from him and his life-saving compadres, and we would teach him some things about climbing. So, one day, Two Tent... Tim, the new Tim, and I were at Supercrack Buttress in Indian Creek, talking about what we're going to do the next day. A climber was eavesdropping, listening to the process. He said, wisely, you guys should check out the North Six Shooter. We inquired. Obviously, we knew the formation. It was the most striking tower in all of Indian Creek, a slim crimson pistol that stood alone, shot 400 feet in the air, and hovered there like a beacon. We probably asked some questions about the crocs and the gear, but what I remember most is his convincing statement, it doesn't get any better than the North Six Shooter. That night at camp, we looked through the guidebook, scribbled out a topo map of the pitches, and tried to hide our nervousness. Two Tent wasn't nervous, though. He lived for this stuff. It was like at any time, he was ready to face his fears and try his hardest on the rock. I was usually in the opposite realm, unready to face my fear, and hopeful that something would come up so we could give up and get stoned go back to the comfort zone. Secretly though, deep inside, I wanted to face my fear with confidence like Two Tent did. I wanted to live freely. We drove Tim's truck to the mighty North Six Shooter. A few clouds hovered off in the distance, a storm brewing for sure. One of us mentioned canceling the mission for cragging at the Supercrack Buttress again, but Two Tent's persistence and vision carried us through to the drive to park the truck, and then we began hiking up. We totally blew the approach, and it took us two hours instead of one, often hiking on ball bearings, the point on a telescope where the surface is unsteady, unpredictable, and you feel like you're going to tumble down to a certain injury if you slip. Sweaty, already tired, confused, and disoriented, I looked up at the tower. There are only two main routes, and they are so obvious that a grandma with cataracts could point them out. Our intended line, the lightning bolt cracks, shot up and zigged and zagged back and forth, so divine and perfectly shaped for human fingers, hands, and feet. It was crazy to think that it had only been first climbed just after we were born. Since the gear of the camming devices necessary to protect the cracks like these was only invented in 1978, nearly every climb in the desert was done first in our lifetimes. The other line, Liquid Sky, was a brutal overhanging squeeze chimney, even more obvious than the lightning bolt cracks. I'd read about the climb in a magazine. It had such a daunting reputation for every thousand people that looked at it, only one probably tried it. The major rumor was that you could become stuck in it. If you fell, you would fall so deeply into it that you could die and they would never be able to retrieve your body. Rumors are rumors, though. But I've yet to climb the thing, so I can't confirm or deny. Two Tent racked up with our meager selection of gear, though growing by the day. That's something about climbing. Your gear, especially if you're a dirtbag, is the most expensive of your possessions. When you embark on a climb, you pull up all your gear and it becomes one communal thing. Two Tent went up with everything and navigated his way through the first crack system, eventually pulling through an overhanging off-width squeeze. Then he slowed down. Two Tent was rarely slowed down, and Tim and I noticed the rope coming to a halt. We looked at each other and whispered what we were thinking. I was belaying and kept my focus on being ready for two tent to fall. Tim had his eyes on the weather. The clouds were building and building, and he mentioned that a thunderstorm was inevitable. 
It was, and just as Tim suggested it, thunder started. Exposure is a big concept in climbing. Sometimes exposure means 2,000 feet of air beneath your climbing shoes. At this particular moment, we were exposed to lightning. The instinct is to get the hell out of there, but I was tethered to two tent, holding the rope for his belay, and he was facing a thin, blank section, trying to wiggle in gear, but nothing fit. We yelled back and forth. He decided to down climb to a chalk stone, wedged in the crack that he'd just passed. The chalk stone had some webbing around it, and he clipped a carabiner and lowered down to our perch. Thunder clapped all around, and finally, it was time to book it. We scurried off the hill, slipping and sliding, but making it swiftly back to the truck, while thunder and lightning erupted all around us. Just when we got back to the truck, it really let loose. The heavens were purple, with a hundred flashes of lightning going off at a time, thunder erupting so often you couldn't tell what lightning was connected with what thunder. As we drove away, we couldn't have been happier to be in the truck. And the majestic desert soon was in the rearview mirror as we headed back to Gunnison. As winter approached in Gunnison, we had a burning desire to see a little bit more of all the rocks before they were covered in snow. So we headed back to Yosemite just before Thanksgiving Day. This time, there were four of us in that purple truck. We were joined by Jared and Dane. Dane was the newest member of our crew. He was equally as innocent and as optimistic as we were. He loved climbing and was intoxicated by it, just as we were. It was a colossal mistake to have so many people in such a small truck. It was also indicative of the lengths we would go to experience the climbing life. This was just a two-seater, so at least two people would have to be uncomfortable at all times. For 20 hours, we rotated in this manner, three in the front with someone sitting in the middle, or two in the back and two in the front. It was uncomfortable and unsafe, but we arrived in Yosemite unscathed. This time, I was more than willing to jump on the walls right away upon our arrival. I've been dreaming about the granite of Yosemite for months and couldn't wait to experience it again. Tim and I got on the Royal Arches, a 1,500-foot moderate route that climbs to the left of some giant arch formations on low-angle terrain. It also has a great view of Half Dome, to the east. At one point, we got passed by three soloists, climbing without ropes, smiling. One of them was even barefoot, with a thousand feet of air below him. By the time we reached the top, we were relatively fatigued. We'd made that marathon drive, during which we drank little water and ate nothing but junk food. And then we hopped right on the wall. At this point, we had to make a series of rappels, heading down the descent slab and then into a chimney system to finish things off. By the time we reached the chimney, it was dark. I was feeling nature's call, and I really had to poop. I wanted to get off the damn wall, and I got in a hurry. I saw a fixed rope leading to the next rappel and decided to hop on that instead of rigging our own rope. I rappelled down the rope, looking for the next bolted anchor. And then, all of a sudden, snap, the end of the rope went through my rappelling device. Since I was in a chimney, I barely moved an inch. I was shocked, but there was no time to contemplate what had just happened. My instincts told me to reach up and get back on that rope. I did, and instinctively climbed back up the rope using a prussic. If I weren't in that chimney, I would have fallen 300-some feet down the wall, with probable death, and if I wouldn't have died, it would have been even worse than death. Another close call avoided. We rigged our own ropes up for the rappel and then made it safely back to the ground. 
Once on the ground, we tried to pull the ropes, and they became stuck. It was pitch dark. We had two options. Climb up the ropes using a prusik, or just leave the ropes until the morning and then deal with them then. We chose the latter, and then went back to find our shoes and jackets at the base where we started. But we couldn't find the base. Frustrated, and draped in nothing but ropes and climbing gear, still wearing our climbing shoes, we set out to find Jared and Dane. We caught a bus to the Curry Village, where we thought we were supposed to meet. No sign of them. They had the purple truck, which had all of our sleeping gear in it. So we just sat by a fire in the Curry Village, warming up and trying to figure out what to do. We didn't have cell phones, so we simply just had to wait to see if they would come by. There was an Alcoholics Anonymous conference that weekend, and there was bustling traffic throughout the building. Many of them noticed our climbing gear and stopped to ask us questions as we pathetically sat there, waiting for our friends. Now this was a dirtbag moment. We started to think about what might happen if we didn't meet up with Dane and Jared. We need to figure out where we would sleep. We only had a couple dollars in our pockets, which we spent on tea to warm ourselves up. We'd have to find a place to sleep. We contemplated crawling under some tables in the coffee shop area and hiding there when they closed down for the night. Things were getting desperate. A couple hours passed, and there was no sign of our friends. Finally, we decided to catch the last bus to the Wani Hotel, which has the finest accommodations in Yosemite. We would try to sleep on couches in the lobby. Still clothed in our climbing gear, we found our way to the Awani Hotel. We got off the bus and walked through the cold night into the Awani. I have no idea how we even made it past the door, looking like the dirtbags that we were, but we were soon out of the cold and into a classy hotel. It was decided that Tim would sleep on the first floor and I would go to the second. I headed up the stairs and planted myself on a couch in the lobby. I fell into a restless sleep, wearing climbing shoes and using a rope for my pillow. Poetic, yet far from comfortable. I woke up in the morning and quickly found my way out of the hotel. Tim was waiting for me near the entrance. He had been discovered in the early morning and was asked to leave. So we went to the base of Royal Arches and retrieved our shoes. I changed shoes and thanked him. We laughed about our night, but I didn't talk about my near-death miss on the rappel. We didn't bring it up for years. I tell the story often now, especially to younger climbers. Though I don't know if telling them really saves anyone from danger, but it reminds me how delicate life is, and how after that day, every day was a bonus. Because, in all reality, I should have paid the price for my mistake, and that price should have been death. Eventually, we found Dane and Jared. They were waiting at the Yosemite Village, and we were at the Curry Village. A simple confusion that led to our adventurous bivouac at the Five Star Hotel. We still had to retrieve our ropes, which were still stuck on the last rappel. I climbed back up the ropes with a prusik. Looking around that pleasantly warm and bluebird late November day, I thought again about my mistake. Yet I had no plans to abandon climbing. The rational decision might have been to give it all up. All these near-death experiences for what? A rush? What was I discovering by existing in the vertical? Questions unanswered then, perhaps unanswered forever. More question marks in the rabbit hole that is climbing philosophy. The knot of the ropes was stuck in the crack. I removed the knot and then rappelled back to the ground. We pulled the ropes and then had the inevitable conversation you have when any adventure is done. What will we climb next? As we thought about that, I was wrought with guilt on the inside for my mistake. I'd now had two near-death experiences in that year alone. I thought of my parents and how they would have dealt with my death. I would be another young climber dead in Yosemite. 
Internally, I could not move on from that, and I think about that day still all the time. Luck was on my side. Physically, we moved on. Since no one was in Yosemite, we went over to El Capitan and did a couple pitches at the base. We climbed three pitches up on the Salate wall, one of the trade routes on El Cap. There were frogs in the cracks, and they seemed inviting, like, hey, come see what's up here. Touching the captain felt magical. We repelled, safely, with thousands of feet of granite above us, promising future adventures, if we could only stay alive. That was episode seven of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast. And obviously, that episode again is uh, wrought with, I guess, what was my second near death experience in that same year, repelling off the end of my rope. Um, before I went to Yosemite, um, I don't think this is actually in there, but a friend of mine um, and big wall ace, Brent Armstrong told me to never trust a fixed rope in Yosemite, which is actually not entirely true, um, but it's a good statement because you should know what you're on at least. You know, there's certain fixed ropes that get maintained quite often out there. And then like the one I was on was just some random fixed rope and, you know, repelling on it and not keeping an eye on the end of the rope or having a knot in it should have been the end of me. And I think I outlined that well and, and wrote that down decently um you know this book at this point was written i wrote it five years ago so i've evolved a lot more as a writer and a climber since then so i think i would write things differently but it's kind of cool to have it all down there and as i said in the last episode i might remember it differently now and so i'm glad that it's all on paper um the last thing i want to talk about as i was actually reading this i realized i used the word beaner for carabiner, which is super, super common thing, but I was listening to an episode of Power Climbing with, uh, or Power Climbing Company, I believe his podcast is called, with Chris Hampton, and he was doing an interview with um, the ladies from Brown Girls Climb, and one of them just noted that that word to her was offensive, and I know that there's a lot of conversations going on in climbing right now with root names and different things like that. And it's interesting that people are defensive about certain things. Like I could easily say, oh, I just, I use that word all the time. And honestly, I, I wasn't even conscious that I, I used it in the book until rereading. You know, for me, it's, it's, it's an easy change. You know, when I was reading it, I just said carabiner and the next edition of my book, I can just make that edit within the book. And I would just invite everyone right now to just be open-minded about the changes that are going on in climbing. And if we're making it more inviting and more accepting of everyone, that's absolutely the direction we need to be going in because climbing is this thing we have to pass on to one another. And I think that climbing is something that should be accessible for everyone, you know, regardless of your race, your sexual orientation, your gender, your religion. Obviously, it is a sport that does cost some money, but I feel like it's a sport that's more and more available to people as time goes on. And I, I think we need to make it available to everyone. And if we have to change some root names um, because... People don't like them or they're just fucking terrible <laughs> like some of this shit that was going on up in 10 sleep. Just change that shit and let's move on and let's be an inviting, accepting culture. 
So as I say every time, the number one way to support the climbing zine is to get online and subscribe to it. We come out three times a year. Check out the link in our bio and our Instagram page or just Google that shit. And of course, you can support us on Patreon, as I mentioned in the last couple episodes, uh, for as little as a dollar a month. Music tracks come courtesy of Ketza and Simon Panrucker. Our digital editor and producer is Chad Rich. For the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast, I'm Luke Mihal, coming at you from Durango, Colorado, which is hot AF right now. <laughs>